Well, hello there, and welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. My gosh, if you could have seen the technical difficulties we had that you will never actually hear, you would feel very sorry for me right now, but you can't, so it's going great. I am one half of your Matt hosts. I am Matt Monagle. Um, I am, you know, I'd, I'd say I'd, I'd say normally under normal circumstances, the one that keeps the trains running on time, but I really fucked this one up. So uh, I'm going to say that today it's my co-host, Matt Donato, who's the one that knows what he's doing. What's up, Matt? You know, you had such nice things to say about me in the other intro, and now they're all gone, and I'm kind of sad. Um, he is, his hair is nice. He he likes muscle shirts. I, do you want me to keep going? No, that, that's actually about it. Excellent. Um, so if you haven't listened to Certified Forgotten before, this is a podcast where we dig through uh, some of the under-reviewed movies of Rotten Tomatoes, specifically horror films, if that wasn't obvious by the, the title or the uh, the icon. And every week we have an awesome guest, and this week is absolutely no different. So, Matt, do the honors, please. Why, yes, this week we do have a very special guest, and she is the managing editor of Fangoria, the new and improved version, as well as co-owner of Houston's own City Acre Brewery. It is Miss Meredith Borders. Meredith, say hello. Hello. Thanks, guys, for having me. I'm, I'm very excited. Is this as exciting the second time that you do it, or...? Um, it is slightly less exciting, but still pretty exciting. <laughs> the honesty is very appreciated. Thank you. Brutally, brutally honest. I fucking love it. Uh, well, Meredith, we've talked about this already. Let's do it again. Um, you know, you are known for many things. You've done a lot of different types of writing over the years in, in um, our corner of film Twitter. But as the managing editor of Fangora, you are horror royalty. So let's let's talk about your coronation. Let's talk about that rise to the top. When did your love of the the horror genre begin? Oh, that's really nice. Thank you. Um, I have always loved horror, but was not really allowed to watch much of it as a kid. So I um, kind of did it in these sort of drips and drabs when my parents weren't around, either at friends' houses or my cousin's house. And then um, I really, really got into it um, as a teenager, which is when I decided that I wanted to be an editor for Fangoria. And then I made it happen. And this is where I say my part again about how, <laughs> as a kid... I wanted to be a garbage man, and I'm very happy that did not come to fruition because I have experienced many more things that I enjoy, probably more than I would have uh, riding on the back of a garbage truck. But as Matt Monagle pointed out previously, somehow life comes full circle because in our corner of film Twitter, I am pretty much known as as the garbage man based on my watching tendencies. And I, I will add to that and say it's totally fair to say you're not the one driving the garbage truck either. You're definitely the one on the back collecting stuff. Oh, yeah. I am just holding on for dear life and trying not mm -hmm. to fall off. <laughs> uh, there. Okay. We've, now we're caught up. We've used all our material. Yeah, we did so, it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Meredith, um, this is the part I don't know about. Talk to me um, kind of about your discovery process, too, because a lot of the guests that we bring on, you know, uh, because we're all of a certain age, uh, video stores played a big part in how we came to appreciate the horror genre. So, what was your personal discovery process? What kind of horror films were you drawn to? And how did you kind of give yourself a crash course in horror? Um, being from a small town that, um, you know, a small kind of conservative town in East Texas, um, I really didn't have many friends who were very into horror. And we didn't have, a. I mean, I had a sort of a video store other than the Blockbuster and that the convenience store um, outside of my neighborhood had like 20 movies, you know? um, one of which was the film version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I rented it every single week um, because I was like, there is something nice. sort of horror about this, you know? Um, so a lot of it was reading. Um, I would 
read about movies that I wanted to watch uh, that I knew sounded good. I um, the bookstore in town did carry Fangoria, and so um, I would get it and just kind of read it and make this sort of you know list that continues to this day of, of films that I, I know I want to watch. And then I really, really got into sort of all the teen horror. Um, I it was, was a teenager in the 90s when all of those movies were huge, and they're still very important to me. And then um, once I got to college is when I really can, could throw myself into an education of it because I moved to Austin where there are great video stores. I also got a Netflix account, and then I didn't have my parents there telling me what I could and could not watch. Yeah, I, I'm curious too. I mean, um, you often, because Austin's changed so much over the last 10, 20 years, you know, a lot of people talk about old Austin and the way that it used to be and kind of the film culture in particular that existed around that time. You know, was were you coming in in kind of the early phases of like a, water, a lot of what the Draft House was working on? Do you feel like you got the feeling for like the old school, keep it weird kind of Austin, especially with the programming? Yeah. Um, so I moved to Austin in 99 um, is when I went to UT and I immediately started going to the Alamo. At the time, it was um, only 21 and up, except for on Wednesdays, it was 18 and up. So I would go every Wednesday for Weird Wednesday. And um, I really, really loved it. And it was another place that I told myself I was going to work and I managed to make that happen, which was nice. Um, and then, yeah, I would go to uh, I Love Video a lot. Um, that was the video store that I, I frequented. I um, A little bit later, I got into Vulcan, um, which very recently passed and is super heartbreaking. But I Love Video was, was the place that um, I, I did most of my, my rentals in, in those early days. And um, I was also born in Austin, but then grew up in East Texas. So I um, had family there and, and visited a lot growing up. And so I especially got to see the really like, you know, keep it weird version of Austin in the eighties when I was going to visit family. My, um, my parents went to grad school at UT. And so I got to, to see a little bit of that. Um, but in 99, I guess it was still, it was a lot smaller than it is now for sure. Mentioning the uh, video stores and whatnot. It is funny because I do still have a few copies on my DVD rack that have not been upgraded to Blu-ray that were from my local uh, video store at the time, video views. And I, again, being the influential side of how I started getting into horror, I was a late bloomer, so I didn't really start renting even until maybe like high school or college and really deep diving. But there's a few DVDs on my rack that I still look at nostalgically that I bought when uh, Video Views kind of went out went out of business. And it, it is that feeling of like, oh, like it was it was my first like <laughs> it, it, weird to say, but like your first love in a way where that's where you kind of fell in love with horror. And I still have Dawn of the Dead, the remake and a few other these like, you know, even more obscure titles that when video views went out of uh, business, I was able to grab them. And it's a nice nostalgic thing to look at. It is. And I actually still have a ton of DVDs, like way more than Blu-rays, because I'm not great about updating stuff. So I'm like, I already have that on, on DVD. I don't need it on Blu-ray. So I have so many DVDs. And right now um, I have this teeny tiny um, TV slash DVD player that I bought for $200 like 20 years ago that I've now just started moving to different parts of my house now that we're all stuck here all the time and I, I'm like tired of the same rooms. So I'm, I'm going through my DVD collection and watching a lot of the stuff that I haven't seen in a long time because it's the only thing that will play on this tiny TV that I can take to like different rooms of my house. Oh, totally. And then I, I, I have a random question. To, not random, actually. It plays off of, you know, how you kind of fell in love with horror and, uh, you know, you're love of like the teenage female aspect of a uh, horror film and that subgenre. And obviously, you know, being like a teenage boy, I might not have gravitated towards those subgenres. I started gravitating towards more like 
the horror comedies and Midnighters and things that we're more familiar with, but like the Evil Dead and stuff like that. So, I mean, I'm kind of curious, maybe as someone who now is going back and discovering movies like Ginger Snaps, which I absolutely loved, and Shudder's really helping out with stuff like that too and having these subscriptions. But if you were to recommend, like to me, someone who maybe has the base value knowledge of those kind of like teenage uh, female experience films, but hasn't really dug that deep in. Do you have a few like random obscure picks that like I could like basically bolster up on? Have you seen When Animals Dream? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. That's Very... that's the one that that's a little bit my go-to. It's so good. And it's a little bit of a, you know, I saw it at Fantasia actually. And I, I thought about recommending it for, for this, but then it has like six reviews or something on Rotten Tomatoes. So it didn't quite fit the, mm. um, the mission statement. But that's one that I think is one of the most like beautiful examinations of teen girl horror that not as many people have seen. And um, it's one that, especially because I do love Ginger Snaps so much, I, I really, I think it's such a like nice follow-up to that, you know, because it's got this, you know, teen girl werewolf um, that ties into puberty and it's this, you know, whole metaphor for, for the like really weird and scary biology that happens to your body at that time in your life, you know, it's so good. Yeah, I really like that movie, and I apologize that you're not able to use it on this podcast because it's probably my fault because one of my reviews is on there, and if I just didn't review everything under this under the sun in the horror genre, we would have so many more films that we could actually do on this podcast. I actually thought about, because my review is one of the six as well, and I'm like, I could take my review off, and that would make it, <laughs> but then I, I just felt like that wasn't fair to the film. So. Fudging the numbers. I see how it is. Meredith, please don't do that because if you start doing that, Donato's going to go back and like change so many scores and we're going to start reviewing stuff I don't want to talk about. So protect us from from ourselves here. <laughs> well, let me ask about the uh, the writing portion of that too um, because you know over the, over the years you've written a lot and you've written a lot for a lot of different sites. Um, what was that kind of pivoting from somebody who was in the audience, um, somebody who was appreciative of these films, and, and I, I assume doing some stuff in school with them as well. You know, what was it like sort of pivoting to become a professional film writer and editor and, and be in the same creative space as a lot of people that you grew up reading? I knew that I was going to be a writer and editor of some sort. My my dad is, I've always been a writer, and, and that was sort of always my intended career trajectory. I, and my dad's a journalist. And so I thought like, you know, like a newspaper man. So I thought that, you know, I would maybe um, major in journalism, but I ended up doing English instead. And I didn't actually major in, in film studies at, at UT, the RTF program. Um, I just, I did playwriting in English and then took all of the film classes that I could without it being my declared major. Um, and then the entire time I just found that I was watching more and more. And then I actually started writing reviews that I didn't publish anywhere, like that I just had like on my computer. Um, and I did that for a long time just to sort of practice. And then after probably, I don't know, two to three years of, of doing that, I sort of got up the nerve to start my own blog. And then I had my own tiny little blog where I would review horror movies and talk about um, genre television as well. And I did that for years just for fun. And then um, I got, you know, I, I worked for a few different outlets here and there. But my first real big break was reviewing The Walking Dead for, at the time, Badass Digest. And that's really when it sort of became a career for me, because that, of course, turned into Birth Movie's Death, which was my job up until Fango. Well, I know, um, you know for people that have that have been in the space for some years, Donato and I certainly, uh, among them, you know, kind of like the jump for, for you to go from what you were doing at Birth Movie's Death to being involved with Fangoria makes all the sense in the world. But 
I, I am kind of curious, you know, if we can pick your brain a little bit too. Donato mentioned earlier the relaunch, the new and improved version. You know, what were you thinking when you came in and you had this, um, not entirely from scratch, but sort of from scratch publication that you were able to sort of mold in the shape of the writers that you liked, the types of film that you liked, the quality of film criticism you like? You know, what was that process for you to basically say, hey, you know, we're going to leave our mark on the industry and it's going to be through this publication we're bringing back from the dead? It was so exciting. Um, of course, the editor-in-chief is Phil Nobel Jr., who's a very good friend of mine and also worked with me at BMD. And so the process was extremely collaborative right from the beginning. Um, he brought me up for the very first meeting and was just like, you know, help me shape this, which I don't know, it was, it was really exciting because I came into Badass Digest after it was already pretty established. And the nerdiest thing that I was excited about for this was that I got to write the style guide. I was like, I'm going to write the style guide for Fangoria. And even years after I leave, this might still be the style guide that people are using. And they have to do dashes the way I like dashes. And they have to do, you know, <laughs> like they have to make sure the punctuation's inside, inside of the quotes. And they, you know, can't have two spaces after the period. It's all the stuff that drives me crazy is now the law for Fangoria. And that was very, very exciting for me. And then, of course, just it was really important to us to have a really diverse array of voices. And that was something that, was also important to us at BMD. And so we brought a lot of people over from, from that space as well. And um, just working with Phil is so great because we think a lot alike. We work really, really well together. There's a ton of mutual respect. And so it was fun to just work with a friend, somebody who cracks me up and I crack him up. But then also as soon as it's time to get down to business, we're both very, very serious and very hardworking and very good at our jobs, which you know is what you want in a, a boss. <laughs> I hope one day there's mutual respect between me and Phil. <laughs> Unlikely. I doubt it. <laughs> Undoubtedly, but hey, we can dream. Well, you know he'll actually listen to this because Meredith is on. So there you go. Now's your chance. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm pretty open uh, on on the interwebs about my, my relationship with Phil. I feel like he knows everything. Phil has more nemeses, like joking, like funny nemeses than anyone I've ever met. I'm always like seeing him in these weird like arguments with people that I know he actually likes online. Well, maybe he'll, maybe he'll tell me he actually likes me someday. (laughs) No, that's not happening. (laughs) No, no, no. Yeah, that's a good point. Yep. Moving on. You're going to get. The closest you're going to get is me telling you you have nice hair, Donato. I, I, I hope that keeps you going for a couple more weeks because that's as good as it gets and it ain't ever going to get that good again. Listen, my, uh, my problem... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, my problems with Phil, that's for a different therapy session. <laughs> Fair enough. Your hair is silky these days, Donato. It's lustrous in the picture. I mean, listen, it's just going to get worse and it's just going to get more Bieberish. <laughs> so uh, I wish we could say we're about to take a break right now so that Matt Donato can go get a haircut. It's not going to happen. But when we come back, we're going to talk about Meredith's pick for this week. And uh, we're gonna we're probably gonna dive a little bit into national cinema too. It's gonna be a fun conversation. So come right back. Zombie, oh zombie, zombie, oh zombie, zombie, oh zombie. zombie, oh zombie. zombie, oh zombie. 
Welcome back. Uh, so this week's pick is a film that was new to me, and I believe it was a film that was new to Donato as well, but certainly not new to Meredith. Meredith brought us Ojuju. It's a 2014 film, a Nigerian Nollywood film by CJ Obasi. And it is like a lot of first films that put people on the radars in the 2010s. It's a zombie movie. It's about a young man and his girlfriend who live in a small kind of poor neighborhood in Nigeria. And as they go about their day-to-day life, they're confronted by uh, an undead scourge that starts to envelop the neighborhood around them. Um, It is a film that includes a bit of a topical message in terms of regional pollution. And it's quite a showcase for Obasi, who has made several other short films and even been involved in a Netflix series since. But to start this conversation, there's a lot of different ways we could go with this film. I think it's an absolutely fascinating first look at Nigerian film for a lot of horror fans. Let's talk about the zombie element. And Meredith, I want to get your opinion on this. I think this is hopefully sort of a softball, but it's good. I want to hear your thoughts. Why is it that a lot of first-time filmmakers, a lot of um, national cinemas, a lot of people that don't necessarily have a ton of money to invest in the films that they're making, why is the zombie genre such fertile ground for people that are just starting out trying to leave their mark? Oh, um, I think that that's sort of a multi-prong answer. And that first, I think Romero is very globally recognized. And so his influence can reach you know, as far as Nigeria in a way that some other American filmmakers may not. And then also I think the the social aspect of his storytelling is really, really interesting, especially um, for filmmakers who are struggling with inequality, pollution. Um, the title card of Ojoju talks about um, the, you know, limited access to clean drinking water that Nigerians have and um, implies that that's how the disease is communicated throughout this Lagos slum, which I think is really interesting. And then also, um, I think zombie makeup is cheap. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think that unlike a werewolf, for instance, like you can very passably create a zombie on a zero budget film, like like Ojuju. Yeah, and I um, I think that's probably a, a good place to start with talking about this film. Is you know, I know that this played at a couple of different festivals. This was something that actually got a fair amount of international attention when it was released, um, both you know, outside of Africa, but also in Africa as well, won a lot of regional film festivals and awards. So how did this come on your radar? How did you first sit down and watch a Juju? I saw it at the 2015 Fantasia International Film Festival, um, which is where I see a lot of great horror and, um, and like Asian and genre cinema that I might not see elsewhere. Um, I love Fantasia. It's such a fantastic festival and um, it goes on for like three weeks. So their programming is really rich. Um, They don't have to just stick with, especially if you go to a lot of these genre festivals as I do, um, you start to see a lot of the same titles over and over again, but Fantasia lasts so long. They can really squeeze a lot of movies in there that you might not get to see elsewhere. So um, I had, you know, when um, Donato came to me with doing this podcast and, and he actually suggested looking at um, festival titles that maybe hadn't gotten a wide release. And I I mean, there were like 10 on my list just from Fantasia that would have been perfect for this podcast, which is, you know, it's exciting. And I think says a lot about the festival. 
Um, it was a midnighter there and the crowd ate it up. Like everybody loved it. It was, it played very, very well to the Canadian. Yeah, and I love how Fantasia, you know, even comparing it to fantastic fest that we're all very familiar with. Um, it, just like you said, Meredith Fantasia is so good about being a three week long festival that spaces out their movies and it doesn't really over program day to day. So you're only getting like one to two options per time slot which gives you the opportunity to see so many more films because if this played something like Fantastic Fest, I could see it getting even more lost in the shuffle of like, all right, it's going to be the 11 a.m. time slot and you're going to pick between this and five other movies and things of that nature. So, you know, I respect Fantasia so much for going out and getting the international stuff like Ojuju and giving it the time to actually be seen by its audience. Yeah, they really give their programming space to breathe and um, they they treat each um, each screening as, as as important as the big premieres, like all of them get this like sort of fanfare, and um, a lot of their attendees are just people who who live in Montreal who maybe don't see a ton of movies otherwise, and just enjoy the festival. And so a lot of it is just fans who are just excited to like sit down and watch a movie, whatever it is, which is I think a really nice energy for these smaller films that they might not get at other festivals. So when you sat down with this audience for the first time, you know, um, I assume a lot of people probably don't have a lot of experience with uh, Nollywood films on the horror circuit, not because the industry is not prolific. I mean, the statistics are that it is the second most productive or has historically been the second most prolific film industry outside of uh, Bollywood in terms of the amount of movies it produces every year. But a lot of those, because there are you know, troubles with copyright and there's troubles with distribution outside of native countries. It's sometimes tough for these movies to get in front of other audiences. So, you know, when you were sitting down and kind of rewatching it and thinking about that initial audience reaction, you know, what was it like watching it outside of the festival circuit and approaching it kind of, you know, as, as somebody who's going to be talking about it and being critical about it and being able to see that distance from where it was in 2014 and where we are with horror now? That's a great question because there's something about seeing something with a midnight audience that elevates everything, um, including sort of the humor. And sometimes that's not always to the film's benefit because watching Ojuju a second time um, in preparation for this podcast, it, it's got a little bit more pathos than I realized the first time around because I'm not watching it with a bunch of like drunk people hooting and hollering and all the gore and stuff. And it's got... It, you know, I, I found myself taking it more seriously this time around when I had the space to watch it just like quietly by myself. Um, I do miss the energy. And of course, all of us miss going to theater so badly right now. But there was something about just me and my laptop watching this movie that made me realize that there was more going on than I sort of had the chance to recognize that first time. It's a very thoughtful film. Yeah, and I was going to say, too, going uh, to the review that you sent that you wrote uh, out of Fantasia about Ojuju. It referenced like the humor and exactly like you alluded to, it was a midnight screening and you had the energy of the crowd kind of going through you and, you know, it was kind of like propelling your energy too. And I, it was funny because exactly what you're saying right now, I took this film a lot more serious watching it by myself. I sat there and was way more into the, you know, like you said, the pathos and the actual like themes and the, you know, its ability to be a culturally appropriate horror film that gives us a vision of zombies in a completely new way. And I wasn't really laughing that much. So it, it was very interesting to see that exact dynamic of what you're explaining, where you can go to a theater with a bunch of rowdy drunk people and see the Midnight or Juju version and get your midnight thrills from it, but then watch it alone. And I'm sitting there going like, all right, there's a lot more like commentary, you know, via political and geographical everything going on. Yeah. And as a 
brief aside, um, I watched Obasi's short, um, what was it called? Hello Rain um, on Quelly, which is, um, if, if you guys don't know about Quelly, it's a streaming service that curates global indie black film. Um, and it's really great. And so that's where you can see, um, that's where you can see both Ojuju and you can see Hello Rain. And Hello Rain is this like 30 minute short film based on this Afrofuturist short story um, by Nettie Okorafor. And it is really, really thoughtful and super, super deep. Um, and it kind of hence, um, Ojuju kind of hints at themes that Hello Rain really dives into. And so, I mean, this, you know, Obasi's got so much to say. And it's really cool seeing the way he developed in the couple of years after Ojuju before Hello Rain. Um, because uh, some of the filmmaking that you see in Ojuju, which is also a very like striking visual film, very bright colors, um, really interesting sort of framing that he does. He like doubles down, triples down in Hello Rain, which is like visually just like very pow, like every single scene. Yeah, I, I, let's talk about the um, kind of like the, the budget and the emergence of his, his themes a bit too. Because, you know, I, a lot of um, Nigerian films, you know, I think the typical budget for for most of them falls between, or at least during this time period, fell between about 25000 to 75000 for the film. I believe Ojuju was closer to the 25000 range, um, you know, we celebrated, we spent an entire year celebrating The Headhunter, as we should, as being a film that was made for only $30,000. And, you know, that was such an aberration and a departure from the industry as a whole. And how did they make something that was so thoughtful and interesting for only 30000 For a lot of Nigerian filmmakers of this era, that was just sort of the standard. That was the budget that they had access to. So there are, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to knock it because a lot of it is just working with the materials and, and the finances that it has. But as, as a horror fan, especially if you're a younger horror fan, you know, how do you watch something that is um, working at a, at a different level from with a different budget and maybe using non-professional actors in a way uh, that you're not used to with American films? How do you kind of set that aside and really understand and see what Ojuju is trying to do and what Obasi is trying to do as a filmmaker? You know, is that do you think that's a difficult process for, for folks? Are they just going to see the seams? Or are they going to really be able to engage with something like this in a meaningful way? I mean, I think I'll go first really quickly, but I, I think that's a hard ask uh, for certain audiences because that also was one of the things I was not struggling with, but I was taking note of uh, through watching Ojuju. Like, it's very much a first time feature. It's very much a low budget feature. And that comes out in the effects, in the makeup work. I mean, like, you know, the zombies, it's just some like padded down makeup and a little bit of discoloration. And you're getting not the Hollywoodized version of a zombie film. And I think in today's world, that is, you know, not and I don't want to say negative because it's not a negative. They're working within budgets. They're working within restraints. But to a large subset of the viewing public, they might turn this off after a few minutes because of the way it looks and because of these kind of things. And that's always going to be there. I mean, there are just some people that aren't analyzing films on the level of what it's trying to say about pollution and what it's trying to say about, you know, what is spreading through this quote unquote neighborhood and they're just watching that as purely an entertainment-based uh, zombie film. And yeah, those people are kind of be a little turned off, I do think. So I, I think in order to get the full appreciation of a film like Ojuju, you do need to be a little more learned. And you do need to be analyzing these films as more than just base value. Oh, look, gore and blood and blah, entertainment. Um, and while I agree with you there, I do think that there is an element in which anyone could enjoy Ojuju just walking in because it's got this really, really naturalized 
uh, sort of snapshot of the culture of this Lego slum and the people, while, while some of the performances, including the zombie performances are not the strongest, um, these characters are, you know, they're pretty well developed and they're um, just sort of the rhythm of their dialogue, the rhythm of, of their just way of being. I don't know. I just instantly found it really, really compelling, especially on this rewatch and very assured like that I think is where his strengths come through at the very beginning with no budget whatsoever. He's got this perfect like snapshot of life that feels believable and resonant immediately, even without, you know, any bells or whistles whatsoever. Yeah. It's confident. I I think that's the one thing that really struck me, um, the confidence behind the message that he's putting forth and the, to quote his nickname, the fieriness <laughs> that is propelling this film. Um, for those who don't know, the director, C.J. Obasi, has credited as C.J. Fiery Obasi. So he does have that fire in him to tell a story that is burning inside that he wants everyone to see. And I, I agree, that's the film's driving factor. And that's the thing that the film does best. Um, it, you know, it's just hard sometimes, I think, for the, the general audience that when they see like the really fake prop being used in a really fake way and things of that nature um, that they might be turned off by. But again, this is micro budget filmmaking. I think as film critics, we have a way of adjusting our senses to a degree uh, when we go into a micro budget film or a low budget film versus yes, going into a Hollywood blockbuster, you know, film is film, but at the same time you do have to have adjusted mechanics. Yeah. And I, I, would ask a general audience um, to try to set that aside for themselves, because if you do become accustomed to only one way of filmmaking, which is the sort of, you know, glossy Hollywood way of filmmaking, you're missing out on just like a ton of really interesting shit because, you know, stuff like Ojuju, you know, you're not going to get a lot of that message across, not, not just the, you know, his commentary on, you know, polluted water, which is huge, but just, just this, you know, glimpse of this sort of kind of life that we're not at all used to seeing. And you're not going to get that in any sort of authentic way from Hollywood. You know, this is where you're going to get it. It's from the filmmakers who actually live in Nigeria. And I, I think that, you know, people who are only used to or only want to see something of a certain budget and a certain level of, um, you know, has a certain level of resources that these other films don't have are really missing out on just so much fascinating stuff that's out there. Yeah, and I think, you know, not to transition off what we're talking about, I think one of the most interesting things to me about Ojuju is, you know, the pollution arc, obviously, that is how the pathogen or virus, whatever you want to call it, is spreading through this neighborhood. But there's a line towards the beginning, uh, I I think it's said by Emmy, uh, but basically Romero and Emmy are running away and they're, they're trying to figure out what's going on. And they're realizing that something is wrong. These are zombies. They're being chased by people that are eating other people. And Romero's like, we got to get out of here. But Remy kind of says, this is my neighborhood. I only know this neighborhood and I don't know anything else. How can I leave this behind? And you start to like realize the segregation between the city and the slum at this time. Because we we have only been in the slum, as you can you know kind of tell by the dilapidated buildings and things of this nature. It's the more village. And this is where the film kind of takes place. And then you have a moment you know, towards the end when something happens and someone gets out. And it really drives home, you know, the classism going on here and everything else that it wants to talk about in on a social context. And just a little line like Emmy saying that and just him being so tied to this village and him being so tied, not even knowing what exists outside, 
is so interesting because you know we as americans we can kind of go wherever we want you know like if i drive an hour i'm in a different city i'm like just the freedoms that we experience versus this very very specific view of an entire village that doesn't really even get out of its village ever yeah isn't that interesting and um although ojuju is technically a nollywood film and and that's you know how it's been designated everywhere i i watched an interview with obasi today where he said that he and um, a group of some of his colleagues considered themselves anti-Nollywood filmmakers for exactly that reason, and that they tell these stories in these tiny little slums and neighborhoods and, um, you know, not the sort of the bigger cities in Nigeria, but these tiny stories that they felt like weren't being told or represented by more mainstream Nollywood, which is so interesting because, you know, Americans watching the more mainstream and bigger budget Nollywood films <laughs> would never believe that there's an even smaller version of that story that filmmakers are, are begging to tell. Yeah. In a way it kind of calls back to, you know, what the way Saulnier makes all these back, we'll call them backwood films, but that whole kind of movement of watching things like, um, Blue Ruin and Green Room and these like off the beaten path films, you know, and like, I feel like in a way like that's our equivalent uh, to that kind of mentality, because it's like, yeah, exactly. We're used to these big city films and these big slick mainstream films. And then you get an indie that goes to a place that we don't, you know, we don't really experience that much unless you live in rural America, you know, something like Blood on Her Name, which just came out, which we've seen revenge arcs before, but we really haven't seen a female mechanic have to get revenge in her small town where everyone knows your name and i i agree that we have a lot of that at play here in ojuju where you know obasi is even using just general dilapidation around him he's in the slum he's filming in the slum and it's this inherent value of the graffiti on these torn down walls and broken homes and things of that nature that he's accentuating and turning in to basically his dystopia but that's all real yeah, and the people who are in the movie actually live in that slum. I mean, he just like went to the slum and, and started filming and then recruited these performers that I think are, you know, very striking. They're they're all great uh, in their own way. They're all very, you know, they really have a story to tell and you, you can believe the story. And, and it's because they are truly at home there. Like that is their home. Yeah, yeah and I think I think that that kind of um, talking about Abbasi Donato, I think that the you mentioned earlier that the intent, you know, the fire, the fact that he, he really has a vision for this stuff. I think it's one of those things that, that really is present throughout the film. And it's present, uh, Meredith, like you were saying, in his desire to shoot it in this authentic location and to position himself outside of quote unquote mainstream Nollywood. But even when it comes to the elements of the, the zombie genre itself, like he has a very clear sense of how he wants to differentiate his film from what's come before. You know, he has that movie within a movie callback where he has his characters watching something that by you know by differentiated from the film that we're watching seems cartoonish and archaic and out of date um, those characters are watching something that seems silly versus the film that, that we're watching and he even you know, throughout the film i'm really struck by how he deconstructs the movement of zombies he has his own very strong sense of how these characters should move there's more of like a teetering wobbling movement to his zombies as opposed to the sort of confident slow moving forward like progressive forward moving nature of Romero zombies and a lot of others. So it's, it's these little things where you start to pick up on stuff and you realize there very strongly is an authorial voice behind this and somebody who's making these decisions and has not only the desire to make something, a lot of people want to make something and, and a lot of those things are great, but the desire to make something that is different from the things that he has seen and the experiences that he's had. 
while still nodding back to to those influences because I don't mm-hmm. know if we've mentioned it yet, but the lead character here is named Romero, which is <laughs> a little on the nose, but in a way that I like because it's such a, you know, sort of just a sweet, authentic, just like big embrace of of this genre that he loves so much. Yeah, I like those kind of, you can be on the nose sometimes and still be respectful and honoring and give that nostalgic touch where, you know, this is a filmmaker who is giving his vision in a way, or sorry, this is a filmmaker who's basically creating a film in an area that not many have seen and creating a film from that area that really doesn't exist in the subgenre. So in that kind of mentality, that kind of international flavor, I love the fact that it's a callback to Romero immediately because it's like, just like we were saying before, the George A. Romero name is, it is international in itself. It is surpassed just any kind of domestic fame. Romero is known for making zombies. So I like the fact that we can get into different countries, different everything, you know, different cities and Romero's name is still resonant. I, I like to see that. Well, let's talk a little bit about the um, talking about sort of the, the importance of the film. But, you know, Matt and I in the podcast, we always try and keep two audiences in mind. They're the people that want to engage with the work of art um, that find, you know, real joy in kind of digging in deep and figuring out the themes. But there are a lot of horror fans and there's absolutely nothing wrong with this that really just want to dive into horror, just want to be say something fun, see something gory, see something over the top. So we we understand and we know that um, Obasi's Ojuju has a lot to say, but I want to talk to you about how he says it. Like what makes Ojuju work so well as a, just a horror film, as a piece of entertainment that works in America as well as it does in Nigeria, as well as it does, you know, in other countries all around the world, what makes it so entertaining? I think that um, a lot of it is atmosphere and style. The, you know, the mechanics of the gore and, and the, zombies um, are just not going to be as effective by virtue of the budget, you know, um, which we've already discussed. But what he has in spades is just so much, such a specific and um, interesting and really, really effective atmosphere. And then just visual style. The film is really attractive. Like it's a very good looking picture, you know, um, that, that scene towards the end where they're like stumbling through the doorway and there's all this orange smoke and you hear the bells chiming in the background. I mean, that's something that I, I mean, I, I could see in a huge budget picture. He's just got a, a really good sense of visual style and of suspense. The film does have, you know, you're, you're immediately, you know, rooting for these characters. You are afraid for their survival and the pacing is really, really great. It keeps you, you know, engaged. It doesn't kind of drop the ball on the stakes. They just continue to escalate slowly throughout the film until they escalate very, very quickly at the end. Um, Yeah. I think those are the most effective things about it rather than, as I said, you know, like the violence is, you know, it's pretty good, but it's not why we're here really. (laughs) No, not at all. And and I think the one thing I will say that's both a positive and a negative um, is the way Obasi utilizes minimal dialogue at times. Um, Basically the way that he steps back as the outbreaks occurring and as these zombies are starting to take over the slums, there's a long stretch where characters are just kind of running around and running away from zombies and hiding. And then we cut to these shots, of the zombies shambling down the streets and 
all of a sudden you realize like maybe like five minutes at least has passed and it's been the same kind of continuous cut which does give it this kind of feel of isolation and fear and paranoia and not having these characters even able to keep keep up and like have conversations as this is happening i think it's effective um and then staying with the dialogue though there were a few moments and this is where having the local actors and the local villagers being actors kind of it does show a little bit is when conversations just go maybe a minute or two longer than they should characters start repeating the same lines over and over again i I think this one time when emmy is quote-unquote asleep and like it's in the it's in the height of the pandemic we already know that when you get bit you turn into a zombie and basically it's emmy romero and a female and they're all they're all sitting there and emmy just kind of dies like he dies right next to them but romero and, and the girl keep saying oh emmy why are you asleep right now oh why are you sleeping at a time like this and they do this for like three minutes and you're like all right get to the point already we know he's a zombie like what are we doing <laughs> so that i think that's the only time for me where i was really taken aback of going like okay, this is a first-time filmmaker and there are some, you know, edits that could have been done here and there is a little shaving that could have been done. Yeah, I I also, um, I totally agree with you there, but I um, to your point about how there's just several, several minutes um, of characters running for their lives without any dialogue, I think that works absolutely on a suspense level. And it also works because the beginning of the film does start really micro. It starts with these tiny little conversations, these little glimpses of, you know, relationships um, that I think are very subtly and confidently done where we kind of understand Romero's relationship to the people around him pretty quickly and without a lot of heavy handed exposition. And so by the time we get to the point where they're being chased by zombies and, you know, everything is just sort of several minutes of running and no dialogue. We already care about these people. We already know what their deal is. And so we're ready to just sit back and like, enjoy the ride. Yeah. And there are for, for a film that um, has so many, like kind of like you said, Meredith standout moments. I'm surprised at how seamless it sort of all fits together. Cause there's the scene that, that you mentioned um, where, the character of Emmy is, is kind of running down the hall, sort of in slow motion smoke. And the, there's a tracking shot that follows her. There's also an earlier scene in the movie when one of the characters who's been attacked is having sex and he keeps flashing between um, it, the sex that he's currently having, as well as the attack that happened to him. And like, you just, you think about it as you're watching it, you're like, this stuff isn't cheap, you know, to be able to do the sort of visual things that Obasa wants to do, like everything, every idea that he chases is an expensive idea. It's much more expensive than letting the camera kind of like point and roll. And on top of that, every time you try and introduce some kind of interesting moment into the film, you know, you, you worry about like, is it grinding it to the halt? Is it, is it going to feel more, and we've all seen these, is it going to feel more like a series of set pieces that are loosely masquerading as a cohesive film? And it really like throughout this movie, there is that sense of escalation that you brought up, but it does, it feels like more than just the sum of the parts. It feels like the, in a lot of that, I think, goes to the character of Romero and the performance that Gabriel Afleon gives. It really grounds this thing in those emotional pathos that you mentioned earlier, Meredith, and keeps it from ever feeling like it's it's a, you know, a first-time feature, show me what you've got so I can get another gig type film. It all feels connected. So yeah, here, here's think... a... Okay, sorry, go ahead, Meredith. No, no, you go ahead. I was going to change the topic. So even if you have an answer to that, go, go first. I was just going to say that I, I think, I think you're right. And I think what we're all kind of 
speaking about in different ways, but really saying the same thing is that this feels like a, a story that he really cares about. Like this doesn't feel like he just kind of threw together a zombie movie because like so many filmmakers, that is their first foray into horror. This is a story that really, really matters to him. And he tells it in a way that makes it matter to us. And, um, you know, I think that's what's missing in a lot of young filmmakers because so many of them are kind of tied up with the technical stuff and they lose a little bit of the, you know, the nuance. I was actually waiting for not only the polluted water to be part of the cause, but also, yeah, maybe like a strain of weed or something. Because <laughs> they do they do stress the fact that like, you know, a lot of the people in the slum are also, you know, we'll say dependent on weed and they use that to escape. And that's a huge plot point. So I, I was actually waiting for that to be part of the subtext as well. Yeah, I think instead it's more just like that slice of life stuff where he's just like, here's yeah. a very realistic portrait of this, you know, this slum and this is what they're all doing to, to pass the time. And also, by the way, there are zombies. Right. So here is another question that I want to get to uh, about the way the story and the narrative are set up. And, you know, when, when the film starts, Romero, Romero is the playboy, we'll, we'll say it, of the slum. He has an altercation with one woman. And, you know, she's saying things about like, hey, we had sex, blah, blah, blah. And, it, you know, Romero comes back with, listen, I have sex with a lot of ladies in this village. <laughs> and also then right after that, he goes back home to the one woman that he loves, Alero, who is pregnant. And this is, you know, his forever boo, basically. And it's like, listen, I have <laughs> sex with the other ones, but I got you pregnant. This, this is this is the real deal. And then she gets turned into a zombie really quick. And. Then Romero kind of forgets about her really quick. And I'm just wondering if anyone else kind of felt a little jarred in the sense that he really seems to have no hangups on Alero's zombification uh, beyond immediately running in fear and panic and meeting up with, I think, Peju is the name of the uh, the other woman that joins his party and who is, you know, I, I guess just another woman in the village, but they just start being together. Um, I don't know. I just felt that it was oh, a really I, quick switch I didn't switch think that there was like no Alara's response. Um, I was just going to say that I, I, I don't think entirely Romero seems to not care about Alero and, and just moves on. I, I got the sense, um, you know, there's a, the scene where, you know, he's he's still crying over and Peju is trying to like get his attention and sort of uh, elicit a little comfort from him. And he's, you know, he's not really having that because he's still kind of hung up on Alero. There's not a ton of time spent on it, but it was enough of a nod to make me feel like Alero's memory was being cherished. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. And that's that was why it was a question. I was like, was I the only one that felt this? <laughs> And that, well, that, that does come back too. I mean, you know, we don't know as film, as movie audiences, we don't really know what the standards are for masculinity in Nigeria. We don't know what's considered, you know, prudent behavior, what's considered male posturing. There's, there's a lot of cultural specificity that goes into how he interacts with the women in his life and how, you know, he, how he might be bucking trends, how he might be transgressive in order to allow himself to sit there and cry on screen. So I think those are the sort of assertions we're really comfortable making when we see an American horror film, because we understand the cultural norms. We understand the way that society has decided that men and women should fit in these films and the way they should be portrayed. And it's one of those pieces where you're like, I think there's something there, but I don't even begin to understand the culture well enough to be able to talk about it. But if you notice it, then odds are that there's that there's something worth talking about there. And it's not something that was just, you know, an accident or, or not picked up there. That crying scene in the bedroom, that's saying something. I just don't know what it is. And I'd love to learn what it is. 
Monica, that's such a good point. I love it because as a as a woman watching international films, especially international genre films, there's always a part where I have to sort of have that talk with myself where I'm like, this might not be a culture that, you know, has gotten to the point where they're talking about women in the same way that we're used to being spoken about in American cinematic culture. And so I always have to sort of give myself these little pep talks about like, yeah, it, it sucks that they're kind of like calling these ladies bitches and that, you know, Alero's main point of attraction seems to be that she was a virgin you know, when he uh, impregnated her. Uh, it's not my favorite, but it's also there's such cultural differences there that I don't want to get hung up on that because that's, you know, that's just kind of prizing my own American feminism over just really trying to understand and relate to an entirely different culture that's brand new to me. Yeah, totally. No, I totally agree with that. And I, I think that does come through a little bit with the way uh, that men do interact with women. And they're just a little quicker to uh, be aggressive and maybe uh, throw a punch or something of that nature. Well, we have time, I think, to talk about the the last thing, which um, Donato and I, this is always one of my favorite parts of the conversation. It's just the idea of like, since these films that we discuss only had a handful of reviews, since a lot of them tend to have pretty robust appearances on, on the film circuit, and a lot of them end up screening in front of a lot of different audiences at genre and non-genre film festivals, you know, what do you think prevents or what has prevented Ojuju from really crossing over to American audiences? You know, what what makes this you see this, there's, you know, there are great film critics out there, people that write for sites like IndieWire that will include this on list of the best zombie movies, but for a lot of sites, this is nowhere near the top. And what do you think it takes for an American audience and for American film critics to make this something that go on, goes onto those zombie lists, that is something that people recommend on Halloween, You know, that is a movie that people encourage others to seek out? I think part of it is accessibility because so many of us, of the critics who you know reviewed it for Rotten Tomatoes, put it on zombie lists, best zombie picture lists, um, are able to see them at festivals. And there's so many of these titles, which is why your podcast is such a great idea, because there's so many of these titles that we're seeing at festivals that the sort of average filmmaker doesn't get to go to, and then they never get to see them. And that's why I think Quelly is doing such cool stuff, because, you know, there's there are so many streaming services out there, but they're really curating and highlighting um, an important part of filmmaking that we're not seeing as much on these other streaming sites. And so many of these other streaming sites are run by, you know, white Americans. And so our lens is, is more limited. And so I think it's really cool that Quilly's entire mission statement is, you know, they're just, um, I'm, I'm actually going to read it. It's, uh, if you don't mind. Yeah, please go for it. Mission. Uh, Quelly TV allows you to discover and celebrate Black stories from around the world through curated independent films, documentaries, web series, kids programming news, and events live experiences. The global Black community refers to the communities throughout the world of African descent who are comprised of unique cultures and histories from North America, Africa, Europe, Latin America, the Caribbean, and Asia. I just think, you know, I mean, you're not seeing as much of that on these many other streaming sites that are available to us. And so it's a great way for films like Ojuju to get um, a little bit of a, a spotlight that they might not have gotten otherwise. And Quilly's only, it's like $5.99 a month. You can also just, you know, have a free week and, and, and see as much as you want and then realize like, oh yeah, there's actually a lot here that, that I want to engage with and, and keep up your membership. I think it's something very cool and important that they're doing. And I was really excited when I saw Ojoju was available there. I don't have anything to add to that, Donato. 
Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> just to answer the base value question, I, I mean, again, that that's a perfect answer. Yes, I, I do agree with Meredith. And I mean, you know, there's a reason why this didn't go to Netflix. And there's a reason why it didn't hit a few other of those streaming services that clearly existed at the time. But, you know, Quelly was kind of saying like, hey, don't worry, we got this and we'll pick up the slack there, which is I didn't know about Quelly until Meredith sent it to me. So that I mean, that's enough right there. You know, unfortunately, I, you know, I hadn't heard of such a thing. And now I do. And that's why films like Ojuju were such a great way of discovering other types of cinema. But then we do have to think about the realistic. And we're all in the industry. We know what drives clicks. We know what is talked about most. And I mean, I was actually surprised this had five reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, <laughs> our, the, the only negative was our friend D.D. Uh, D. D. Crimmins, uh, who didn't, did not take to it. But again, it's, you know, I do want to kind of read her blurb really quickly, because I think it does come into what we were talking about uh, before, about seeing these films as Americans and not having the full cultural impact of the time. Uh, but the way that <laughs> I was not expecting this film to be a masterpiece, but the extended toilet jokes, the unnecessary sex scenes, and the fact that the camera work and acting were painfully amateur uh, made me realize that the filmmakers were not trying to, the filmmakers were not trying to make one. So uh, like that is kind of one of the ways that people will come into and leave Ojuju thinking. And I think that's the biggest blockage for it. I think the biggest blockage for it is we understand the impact of what is being made here and we understand what is thematically resonant and important, but for the general public, it's a hard sell. And, and that's the shitty realistic part of it and the part that you know no one really wants to admit to, but I, I do think that's the reality here. Didi's not wrong. There is a lot of uh, toilet humor that I could have done without in a shoot that yeah. I'd forgotten about until my rewatch. And I'm like, so many fart noises here. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What was the entire, ex- yeah, we don't need to talk about the entire extended poop scene, but yeah. <laughs> there, just be aware that there's about a four or five minute long constipation scene in the film that we didn't, we didn't address. It's there. Your mileage may vary. I mean, the pay- the payoff is there. She does poop eventually. You know, it, yeah. it's it's a whole process of watching her sit down, try to shit, uh, smoke a joint, and then actually shit. You know, really important to the plot. It's riveting, and, honestly. It's, it's, it's fucking cinema. <laughs> but yes, no, yeah. I want to say thank you, Donato, for for bringing closure to our audience. I'm not sure they would. It's like did the dog die? dot com. It's like does 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 she actually manage to go to the bathroom? It, they would have they would have been turned off if they didn't know that there was a happy ending there. That's true. Well, what's that? Oh, wait, we won't get into that. That's it doesn't matter. <laughs> In any case, that is my answer. Um, yeah, I just think it's a hard sell for international low-budget cinema to play American audiences and be received correctly. Yeah, and I, I won't add um, to that kind of context because I think both of you have done a really good job of it. But you know, as is so often my refrain on this show, my lens for evaluating film is if I watch something and I feel like there's a really, really good college essay to be written about it, then I think it's an important movie. And I think there are many, many really good college essays to be written about Ojuju, and I probably already have been. So I think there's a lot in this film um, as a representation of Nollywood, as a representation of the horror genre, um, as a, a representation of low-budget or micro-budget filmmaking that, that makes this something that everybody especially those who want to make movies. I think people that, that um, feel like they, they have something to say and aren't sure how to say it. I think this is a horror movie that they can get behind. Yeah. I like that yardstick. I, I feel like had I seen this film in college, I would have had plenty to say about it for a film studies class. Definitely. 
All right. Well, that is it for this episode of Certified Forgotten. Uh, Meredith, if people want to follow along with the work that you're doing over at Fangoria, some of the other podcasts and writing that, that you're doing as well, is there a preferred social media? Is there a way for people to, to keep in touch? Do you have a Substack? Everybody has a Substack. I don't. I don't have a Substack. What is a um, Substack? I am on Twitter and I link to all of my stuff there. <laughs> I, I don't know. What is it? Oh, it's just like a, it's like a newsletter thing. Yeah, I think you're the only one that has a Substack. Okay. If you have a Substack, I don't. I just wanted to impress our listeners by telling everybody that I knew what a Substack was. I don't you know, know what, what the fuck a Substack is? Play, play to our strengths, Monagle. It's fine. Google it afterwards. Donato, if people want to see pictures of your hair, where do they go? Uh, if you want to see pictures of my hair, you can go to Instagram at Donato Bomb, or you can follow my writing and things of that nature on Twitter and Letterboxd, also at Donato Bomb. And you can also find my newly created site, DoesSheShit.com, in which I'll tell you if the woman shits in the movie you're watching. She does. She shits. Um, also, she I forgot shits. to give you my Twitter handle, which is XYMarvin. Okay. Hey, I was I was actually going to say, I'm like, did, we, did Meredith ever say her Twitter handle? <laughs> I did, and I got confused by the whole Substack thing. That's okay. I'm sorry. I never should have said that. I would like to apologize to both of you right now. And while I have the spotlight, I'd like to promote my own social media accounts, which are Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. You can follow me there for the film criticism that I do and also to you know, wait for me to harass Donato about something or another. I, I, I'm so busy these days with work stuff. I usually just pop in every now and then to let him know that I'm thinking of him. Oh, it's so nice. sweet. <laughs> it's really nice of me. I'm wonderful. <laughs> Meredith, it was so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for picking this film in particular. And I, I know I speak for both of us when we're looking forward to having you back on sometime soon. Guys, I had a blast. Thank you so much. Donato? Demon Wind.